Hi, I'm Jamie Wincup. Hi, I'm Rick Kelly. Hi, I'm Lee Holdsworth. And you're listening to Inside Supercars. From the racetracks across Australia, and here's Inside Supercars. Welcome to Inside Supercars. We've got a voice that uh, has not been on for a while because he's been out of the country. Welcome to Inside Supercars with Craig Ravel and Tony Whitlock. We're joined by Jeff Doc Slater, a long-time man in the supercars paddock and one who has been missed by many. As uh, if you've seen on the Facebook, well and truly, welcome back, Jeff. Thank you, Tony. Thank you, Craig. Great to be back. Two years in America, living in Columbus, Ohio, and working with Rail Letterman, Letterman Lanigan Racing, the works BMWs in GTs in IMSA in America. Uh, an amazing uh, time there, I imagine, quite apart from the uh, COVID, but to be racing in such an enormous series. It was uh, a fantastic experience, and uh, I, I've been on the show before, and I said my first race with the team, had uh, the great Alex Zanardi uh, drive for us, and uh, that in itself was an experience that I could probably go on for an entire episode. Um, unfortunately, we did have a great end of race for that one, but uh, you know, the first year was great. We had a couple of pole positions and, and podiums, and 2020 started fantastically well, winning the Daytona uh, 24 hour with. Um, you know, Chaz Mostert was on board for this, year, this one with um, Augusto Farfus, Jesse Crone and John Edwards. And uh, over the year, it, it has been trying, obviously, with the COVID interrupting the series, but uh, the, the team and, uh, and I managed to, to pick up the Endurance Championship, uh, which is based off Daytona. Uh, usually it's Watkins Glen, but unfortunately with COVID in New York, we couldn't race there. So it was two races at Road Atlanta and one at Sebring. And we're on the podium for all the races. Uh, we had a good shot at winning three of the four races. Unfortunately, a slight bad luck ruined two of those. But uh, we still won the championship and finished second overall in the, in the championship. So 2020 was a pretty good year. Okay. Maybe we'll just go back for one second if we can because... I've only read from Zanardi. I've seen him speak, of course, a couple of times, both pre-accident and post. Um, one of uh, racing's uh, great men, but actually one of the great men of all sport. He, uh, an amazing personality. Tell us a little bit about him. Uh, he didn't have an off switch. The, the guy was just fully committed to whatever he did, was absolutely competitive in whatever he did. So... Naturally, the injury took away his legs. That didn't stop the guy. So, obviously, people out there know about him, or if you don't know about him, he, he you know, obviously lost his legs in a car accident, became a, a um, Special Olympics champion, multiple champion, um, and the guy is just a freak. If you give him a challenge, he won't accept no, and will just go after anything. So, it was just phenomenal to see uh, how he went about one, driving the car without pedals. So he had uh, the throttle on the steering wheel and had a, a handbrake for his braking system. And then just how we did the, the driving uh, code driver changes. He actually would climb up with one hand and, and be plugging the other driver in. And uh, it was a sight to behold. I think uh, if you look on BMW Motorsports website, you might find some footage of it. So 
I mean, the, the guy was just a, a complete utter professional and um, there was no other word in his vocabulary than competitive. That, that is what he was. Doc, how difficult is it to work with two control systems, one on the steering wheel for Alex and then pedals for the uh, able-bodied drivers? Uh, well, that is what led to our downfall in the race. Uh, when we changed drivers, we had to change the steering wheel itself because only Alex could use the, um, the throttle-enabled steering wheel. And so physically, we had to change it between pit stops. And uh, as he was getting in, we dropped the car and it bent the, the, the pins of the steering wheel and uh, basically it ruined our race because we needed to change all the electrical side of it and the steering side of it from that point on. Um, as far as actual differences, it was actually pretty simple. We, we could monitor what the brake pressures were, monitor what the brake bias was. So we could effectively set it accordingly to whichever driver was in the car. If Alex had adjusted it, we could let the next driver going in, what the adjustments were and, and vice versa. And, um, I mean, reality is, you know, Alex, Alex drove splendidly, I would say. I can't think of a better word. The guy was a freak. In, in the car, he was only four tenths off the fastest guy. He was just, you know, I don't think it, it, it disabled him in any way performing what he, he had to do. Did he have uh, an additional sense of bravery? I, I've met uh, people who have said when drivers have had a terminal illness, say, uh, all of a sudden, uh, there's a, 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 a sprint car, a midget driver in the States whose name was Lonnie Carruthers, and he just said, never try to outbreak a man with terminal cancer. You can't play chicken with me. And he uh, drove very much like that. Uh, Alex was the same. The, 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 the bus stop at Daytona, I think Alex was our fastest guy through. He would outbreak all the other drivers and carry the speed through. Like He was phenomenal at, at what he did. Okay. Um, we might just, before we leave Alex, I'll just, uh, the story I know about him, that when uh, the accident happened in Germany in IndyCars, he was T-boned by another competitor, an unfortunate accident, just a high-speed shunt. He lost one leg, had to be removed at the track, and then subsequently in the hospital. I think one of the most amazing things I've ever heard from a human being was when he was in hospital and his wife came to visit him, and obviously daily and hourly and things like that. And at one stage, he turned to his wife and said, honey, I, I, it's something I really haven't made up my mind about yet. And she sort of, what was that? Well, I haven't worked out how tall I want to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, to have such an outlook is an extraordinary thing. You know, I, I'm just m- mind blown by that sort of thinking. Anyway, let's get on to uh, the racing part of it because uh, that's what you've been doing. Now, you obviously had a, a you know a 10, 15-year history in both uh, GT in Australia and won a Bathurst 12-hour with uh, the McLaren team, works McLaren team. You also, um, uh, in supercars, have a long history with three or four different teams. Um, Brightec was your foundation team. Um, tell us, um, going from supercars to the GTs, where one is a, a locally born category and the other one is an international category, that must have been a very different sort of can of worms for you to work with. Uh, it, it was. I mean, I don't think people realise the the calibre of racing in Australia is 
top top of the field. It it, it ranks up there with uh, a lot of the major series around the world. Um, and uh, so it 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 put myself in in good speed to go over and and naturally it's a different car in the sense of uh, the the GT car has a lot of aerodynamic capability. Uh, we don't have that in supercars to the same level as what the, the GT cars do. So most of it was just getting getting your head around all these sensors that are provided for you, all this aerodynamic effects that you can. Uh, you can you can take full effect of, um, and reality is manufacturer support. It's great having a manufacturer support, um, which goes a long way. And that's something that supercars, I know that have been crying out for a long time to get more manufacturers in. That that's the, the biggest difference. And of course, the cars are quite heavy in GT. Um, in fact, possibly heavier than um, our supercars at fourteen hundred kilograms. Uh, yeah, the Porsche. Porsche was the heaviest GT car, and it would have been up there. Uh, the, the BMW was yeah, around okay. 1,300 kilos. A very different tyre that they use over there. Were you, was it Michelin tyre you're on? It was a Michelin tyre, and they were car-specific, so Porsche, Corvette, uh, Ferrari, Ford last year, and, and BMW all had the specific uh, three different compounds, a soft, a medium, and a hard. Um, so it's not like supercars where everyone has the same tyre. And the soft is the same for the front of the field and the rear of the field. Each manufacturer had its own different uh, compound and construction applied. Because they're all different sizes as well, of course. Uh, yeah, to some degree, yeah. Now, the biggest difference between, say, racing in that series, I mean, you don't do as many races in the IMSA series as, say, in supercars normally. And obviously this year was very different. But you have a, a much greater variety in length from the 24 hours of Daytona down to some shorter races around Long Beach. Was that is that correct? That is right. So uh, last year, uh, the shortest race was 100 minutes at Long Beach. Uh, this year, we did that at the Charlotte Roval just before the NASCAR event. So that was that was uh, something very different. Um, and then the longest event is the 24-hour race. But the standard race is a two-hour, 40-minute race. And so obviously, strategy plays a, a very large part in uh, determining this, uh, you know, race speed and, and the uh, way in which you work your drivers because you usually have three drivers in the car in the longer of event. Anything over six hours, we will have three drivers. We can have three drivers in the six-hour event, but usually we, we, we just did two. I think most of the other teams did two as well. But the 10, 12-hour and 24-hour uh, with three drivers and four drivers for the 24-hour. Rail Lanigan is a, a, a major race team in America. Bobby Rail has uh, got a big BMW dealership and uh, in Columbus. Um, it must be very different working for a, you know, a work-supported team because your access to information and it's far different to what you'd say being used to at a, a techno, for instance. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the benefit of working with a factory team is they, they design the car, so the car's homologated. We can't really do anything to the car as such, which is the same with all GT racing I've done. Um, but the information they provide you is, is enough to get you well down the field. Now, they give you all the aero maps. They give you the full balance sheet calculations. They'll, they'll, you know, it's a good guidance of what needs to happen. And then the idea was that that information was provided to uh, Ray Hall, Weatherman, Lanigan, and we set the car up and uh, 
run the car as best as we could. So it, it's been a very successful partnership between BMW and RLL in the Inter Championship. They've won many championships, won many races. <coughs> um, so yeah, that, that's the great thing about having a manufacturer support is information is readily available. Um, working in a small team at, say, Techno, the information information is provided by by Triple Eight to Techno and probably will be the Team 18, etc. Um, but you do a lot of work by yourself to try and and find whatever key ingredient you need to to outperform anyone else. With Gen Three on the way, Jeff, would it be a good idea if the homologating teams, which effectively are the manufacturers, if you like, were yep. required to provide that level of detail and that level of data to every team that is running that homologated car? Uh, I think it would be a good thing. Um, I think it would bridge the gap between the teams that have and the teams that don't have. So the the teams that are down the back have the same information as the teams up the front. Uh, Again, dealing with Triple Eight, when I dealt with them at Techno, they were very open with what they would tell us to a point. But again, a lot of it is their IP. So they're not going to relinquish whatever they've found to be the key thing. So I understand that. But at the same time, if they're the manufacturer, naturally Holden or Ford or whoever a manufacturer wants wants all their cars up front. So whatever information you can provide every team to enable them that to happen, I mean, that I think is a a good step forward. At what point do you think uh, the cutoff has been in supercars in your past experience? Have they cut off at like 75% of the information or has it been uh, actually a lot more? Has it been about 80, 90 and it's just componentry-wise most teams aren't at that cutting edge? I mean, componentry-wise, Triple Eight was very open. I mean, if they designed something and it was a benefit, Naturally, they wanted first use of it. They would tell you that this was available, but it wouldn't be available until X rounds down or next year or something like that. So they were very open with the, the, the manufacturing component side of it. Um, the engineering side of it, naturally, things they want to keep to themselves, the, the performance, the big ticket items, so to speak. Um, they weren't shared, which is understandable. Um, but also, Vice versa, you know, if, if whatever team you work for and you find something that, that's working, you didn't have to share that back. So. One of the interesting things this year, Jeff, was that supercars dropped one data engineer. Did you experience that in IMSA? Did they cut back personnel at all? And <laughs> interestingly, a lot of the smaller teams said that, you know, in the, the disparity that created was inverse to what... Uh, the thought would be uh, because the smaller teams might not have had as good a data engineer, but they didn't have the people who could step in to fill the breach and cover all that extra ground. And even uh, Couchy said to us, it was so much extra work for him losing that extra engineer. But I know the small teams really, really struggled with it. Yeah. Uh, I can understand uh, it, from the IMSA side of things, it really didn't change. So, how the MW and RLL structured their 
uh, engineering team was a, a race engineer, a performance engineer, and a systems engineer, and that didn't change. So from last year to this year, we still had the same amount of, of personnel um, engineering-wise. We did scale back who we took to the track to some degree. Um, I think it was 11 people per car or something like that. Uh, I mean, the, the cars are very t- highly technical and, and, and require a lot of people to um, help keep them maintained and running. So we had a lot more than what supercars obviously has. But uh, as far as the engineering side, we weren't handicapped anywhere like that. And and I see Porsche and Corvette had the same thing. And Porsche also had an office over in Germany that was linked in. And they could uh, see the data, live stream the data, uh, live stream the footage and offer it assistance to, to Porsche and BMW had the same thing for us. When you worked in Australia last, um, I, I, without being rude or derogatory about the teams you'd worked for, um, you wouldn't have, none of them were, were uh, overly resourced and yet you went into a team that uh, you know had virtually, not unlimited, but certainly had all the tools you needed to do the job. Did you have to sort of acclimatise the way you were used to working because of that? Yeah, yes. Uh, I mean, I like the Australian mentality of you don't have all the resources, so you need to come up with whatever way your thought process has to be to get the most out of the data analysis or the equipment that you're using, etc. Over there, having, I won't say unlimited budget, but having uh, all these resources at, at, at your fingertips it was uh, overwhelming to start with, um, but you, you get your head around it. And uh, the channel, channel data, channel-wise, I mean, we, we're very limited with what we log here in supercars. When you go over there and you've got you know, 100 and something tire channels just to look at, that's overwhelming in itself, let alone everything else that's going on. So it takes you a while to get your head around it, but at the same time, coming from a background of, you know the priorities that you need to, to set and investigate. It was easy to um, yeah, prioritise what information I needed to look at. Now, of course, when uh, supercars in your background, when supercars rolled in a town, whether it was Darwin or Perth or, or Townsville, um, you know, it was a big show in town and, and there was a lot of attention drawn to it. Obviously, somewhere like uh, Daytona and Sebring, those are race race towns in themselves. I haven't been to either of them, but I'm sure that they're used to seeing the races arrive. Um, was that the case? Did you sort of get that feeling that uh, you were in town and people were paying attention? Uh, well, obviously this year was very different with COVID. Uh, the, the day turn of 24, yes, like it was a, a huge event in itself. Um, and Sebring, there was a little bit of that, but I will say that majority of the time for us was spent at the track and very little time was spent uh, outside of the event. So you, you didn't really get the feel of what was happening. With Rayal uh, Letterman-Lanigan, um, did you have the opportunity? They're an IndyCar team and have run two, three or four. They've won a couple of 500s. Um, did you have the uh, opportunity or thought of transferring onto that open-wheeler category? Uh, not, not really. Um if I pursued it, we prob- probably could have come, uh, gone further down that path. But uh, I mean, I did did my two years, and and I mean, 
I had a son born this year, and with COVID and things running rampant over in America, the safest place to be was back in Australia. So, I mean, I had other options to do other GT um, series, or the same series, but other teams. Uh, but um, that was my wife's denied decision to, to move back to Australia and look after our health first and foremost. And your, your newly born son. Yes, indeed. Jeff, maybe you could just give us an insight into not so much the, the race team, but the series as such. Were there things that supercars can learn from the way in which IMSA, which has been a very large series for a long time, that things that could operate better here? Uh, to be honest, Supercars actually puts on a good show. I mean, that, that is, when you talk to you know, drivers like uh, Van Gisbergen or uh, you know, whoever's driven overseas, they like racing in Australia because we put on a good show. We have tight racing. Um, the cars are, are not the easiest cars to drive compared to a car that's got a big tyre and a lot of error. Um, so the drivers get the feel of they're actually doing something. So the show itself, Supercars actually does a very good show. Uh, what I like about GT racing, and it, it, we see it in the 12-hour, and it, it's very prominent in the WEC series and in IMSA, is you have your three tiers of, of racing. You've got you know, your, your DPIs, your prototypes, your GT LMs, and then your GT. So you've got these three completely separate races going on, in effect, during the, the, the series, during each event. Um, and it's huge speed disparity between each of them. So, again, it's another element that you know, super, supercars, everyone's got effectively the same equipment. They can all effectively do the same speed. Throw in something that's 10 seconds a lap faster, throw in another cut that's 10 seconds a lap slower, all of a sudden it's a different race. I do like that aspect of GT racing. I did like that in in the <coughs> in the Inter. I'm sure supercars weren't going down that path because it kind of defeats the purpose, but that was one good thing that they had. Um, as far as the rules and, and and things like that, I think you know, Supercars has evolved itself to being one of the, the better championships around the world. Um, doesn't mean we can't be better in Supercars, but uh, as far as IMSA goes, it was very, you know, a safety cut, full course yellow would come out, pits were closed. So in Supercars, we race to the pits. We do whatever changes. I mean, that can be, can be implemented I, I prefer how supercars approach it with you, you are racing constantly. Um, so I, looking at the big picture, I don't really think there's a lot that IMSA itself, the, the, the series could bring to make supercars uh, a, a better championship, so to speak. Uh, I'm sure if we, we delve into a bit more, there's probably one or two elements, but uh, again, the biggest difference between there and, and and here is the money, the monetary side, the manufacturer support. That's probably the biggest element that supercars could use more of. Spice up the racing, bring in more teams. That's what I was going to ask, uh, Doc. Is there a, uh, you know, turn up and race policy at IMSA or is it a franchise model like we see here in supercars? Uh it is almost a turn up and race um, model in some essence. Uh, obviously, with COVID, a lot of teams didn't really put their hand up and continue on with the series issue. Being involved with teams at the Bathurst 12 Hour, 
what do you think of the news that Stefan Rattel's organisation, SRO, is going to become part of uh, the motorsport picture in GT racing from next year back here in Australia? Uh, I think it's a good thing. I actually like the model that the SRO provides in terms of uh, the GT racing. I mean, one, one essence that I did like from the IMSA model is basically you're racing on a two or three race BOP adjustment. So basically, if, if you're fast for two races, you know, you could be adjusted to the next one. I like the model in a sense of, of the SRO's model is, you know, we, we set the, the BOP at the start of the year and then you go flat out. So your car might be good, it might be terrible, but you go flat out. Or the car might suit one track, a slow-speed track, compared to a high-speed track, and vice versa. So it introduces other variables, whereas it's kind of... Uh, and I understand that they're trying to control it with the the the, the, the BOT in engine series, but it allows teams to play the system, if that makes sense. Um, so too many teams can, okay, I want to be faster at X race. I'll, I'll play a game and I'll do this and, and won't show my speed. So I, I get power back or I'll get weight back or I'll lose weight or et cetera, et cetera. And then two races later, all of a sudden, they're highly competitive. I, I don't really like that model. This year, of course, you've largely been in lockdown um, and uh, in an apartment with your wife and now son. Um did you get much of a chance last year, though, to travel to see uh, outside the, the bubble of the race team? I, I did. So last year, you know, my wife and I got to explore uh, places like Nashville and, and New York, and uh, we would fly in early to certain rounds and, 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 and venture around Laguna Seca, the beautiful part of California. Um, so we did get to experience some of what we wanted to do, but unfortunately with everything clamping down this year it's kind of ruined our anticipation of what 2020 would be is the way the uh, workshop runs and then off to the racetrack understanding it's a, a different model but is there a similar situation with you're ready by wednesday car goes off for a two three day journey and then everyone's preparing another car or is it then that's when they get their break before they all travel to the racetrack? It, it, it is very similar to supercars. So we would have one chassis, well, two, two chassis, obviously one per car, so to speak. Um, the boys would prepare it. It would go into a truck. Uh, we did have a spare chassis that was in the truck just in case because some rounds were back-to-back rounds. Uh, we went in and did the Charlotte 100-minute race, and it was torrential rain. We had a spare car in, in the truck because the following week was the six-hour race at Atlanta. So we kind of um, yeah had, had a little bit of... Uh, the model was very similar to supercars in the sense of, you know, we prepped the car, car goes, uh, the guys would have the time off Towards the end of the season, um, building a new chassis for next year, the guys would come in and do a day or two extra just to be on the front foot of, of building cars for next year. But um, in, in essence, it's the same. Because of COVID, was your trip to America, your uh, working experience there, was it cut short? Did COVID uh, do that to it? It's like uh, 
I mean, we went over there with a, 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 a several-year plan. Um, I mean, I had a two-year contract with, with Barry Holland and Lanigan, and uh, basically with everything that was happening this year, and, and we were living in the state of Ohio, and Ohio's uh, COVID response initially was quite good, but it's been poor lately. So um, everything is is ramping up, and uh, it, it, it is frustrating seeing only four walls um, for seven months. So it, it was time to come back to Australia and uh, experience some kind of normality. With your return to Australia, obviously there'd be a lot of interest in gaining a well-credentialed engineer to come and work for them. How's the uh, job hunting and job prospects going? Uh, it's good. There's uh, been quite a few offers um, made available and uh, I think I've made my, my selection, but um, yeah, no, it's been good. It's, it's a good response coming back and, and knowing people want you. So. There doesn't seem to be like some industries where uh, they sort of shy away from people with international experience in motor racing. That's like the gold standard, isn't it? I think so. I mean, if you can go overseas and, and, and prove your ability, uh, I, I think that just puts you in good stead. When you return, you're not in a position uh, at the moment, then, Jeff, to tell us where you're going or what you're doing. Uh, at the moment, no. Well, you've certainly got the credentials to uh, step straight back into a supercar series. I imagine that's probably got a bit more uh, interest to you than, say, Hyundai Racing or Formula Ford, or not taking anything away from those categories. But uh, I would think the top level of motorsport was crying out for someone with your knowledge and experience. Um, and the overall impression that uh, you've given us is one that uh, supercars does stand up well internationally. Um, the biggest thing that was missing this year from Bathurst was it was our first year there were no Northern Hemisphere drivers. Uh, you know, no Jason Plato's, Alan Menus, John Cleland, Max Wilson, no one at all. And, and I felt that was a, a giant gap. Now, obviously... COVID made a, a big uh, hash of those plans. Do you see that as something that's important for the category to get those international drivers back for uh, Bathurst 1000? Uh, I think so. I mean, uh, I, I used to enjoy the Gold Coast event when you would have the international drivers, um, you know, predominantly from, from US-based series, from IndyCar and, and IMSA. And uh, talking to the guys over there, they loved supercars. They enjoyed watching it. They enjoyed driving the cars. Um, and, of course, it just increases the popularity of it. Now, I know it's an Australian-based championship, and uh, we need to promote young drivers coming through, and they need a chance to do it. But on the same token, it would be great to have an international flavor driving cars, promoting it, um, you know, whether they're from the UK or the US or Finland or wherever they're from. It, it, it would be good for supercars to have that element. Could supercars franchise itself overseas, do you think? Do you think supercars would actually work as a series in America, not transplanted like we did when we all went to Austin, but actually supercars built, run and maintained by teams there? The problem is this, uh, I'm sure it, it probably could survive. Uh, would it thro- uh, flourish? Probably not. Uh, I mean, NASCAR is huge in America. It will take a lot to knock that off its perch. 
Uh, they've got IndyCar, they've got IMSA. There's, there's a lot of championships uh, underneath all those as well. So I don't think supercars that such, the model could go there and survive. Um, but I think, yeah, as we did in 2013, I think there's no reason why supercars couldn't go and race there and, and piggyback off a NASCAR street race or an IndyCar street event or, or, or track event. Um, now that the model is a Ford and you know, a Chev, it, it, it's the American market. It opens the American market. So uh, it, it would be a shame if we didn't take advantage of that. Jeff, thank you very much for joining. That's Jeff Slater. Um, re, uh, coming back to Australia and joining us on Inside Supercars. It's been terrific. And we look forward to uh, when your news does come out and we'll be in a position to know where we'll be talking about you and what we'll be talking about and who'll be involved in what we're going to be doing. So thanks again. Uh, days to go now in your quarantine, I understand. Um, so uh, welcome, Queensland, when you get there next week. Thank you very much. Inside Supercars is produced by Thunder Media. Tune in next time for more or lock in the podcast on your iTunes or mobile device, search Inside Supercars. The views expressed on Inside Supercars, including the panellists and guests, do not reflect the views of the network, Thunder Media or Sport Radio. Any publication or rebroadcast of the show without the expressed written permission of Thunder Media is strictly prohibited.